Welcome. You're listening to the Camino Church Podcast. This is Lessons with Pastor Steve Sellers. Every week, our host will dive deep into Scripture, giving you a convenient way to stay in the Word of God. Whether you're mopping your floors on a Saturday morning or sitting on a beach enjoying a well-deserved vacation, we're glad you're here and we're glad you're listening. Let's get started. Hey everybody, it's Pastor Steve. Welcome back to the Camino Church Lessons podcast as we continue along with our journey through the parables of Jesus. Today we're going to be in Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. This is commonly known as the parable of the Good Samaritan. You may even have a header in your Bible that translator or a publisher has put there to call this the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, I doubt that it was called that when it was taught, and we'll talk about that a little bit, but uh, we're going to dive into that parable today. It's such a great parable. Uh, it's got great stress in it. We've, we've talked about when we began this podcast series, uh, a stress that Jesus throws in his parables so that uh, he can kind of uh, maybe shock or surprise the audience into a different understanding and a different different mindset. Uh, so I think uh, when we talk about that during this parable, that's going to be great. I think you're going to enjoy that. So let's jump in, folks, and let's, uh, let's see what's going on. Uh, before we actually jump into the reading of the parable, we need to know what's happening before, right? We want to know the biblical context of this parable, and that kind of helps frame what's happening. And right before... Uh, this parable, you have uh, the disciples of Jesus, and we're talking about more than the intimate 12 uh, apostles that we talk about. We're talking about uh, a larger group of disciples that followed Jesus and that he sent out on mission. And this, They've come back. There's about 70 of them, maybe 72 different Manuscripts that have been found in the past have the numbers a little bit different, but it's either 70 or 72 that Jesus sent out uh, to, do, to do his work, and they have returned. Uh, they're actually on the journey of Jesus, kind of some, for some perspective. At this point in Luke, Jesus is getting ready to head to Jerusalem, and on his way, he is going to pronounce and speak in certain cities, and he has sent his disciples, these 70, 72, ahead of him uh, to prepare them, in essence, for his coming. And that's not unusual if um, a great speaker, a king, a prophet, a philosopher was going to visit certain cities, they may send some folks ahead of time to kind of get people excited, to kind of... um, advertise, unlike today where we can advertise on social media, on normal media, typical media, mainstream media, whatever you want to call it, uh, where we can run ads, uh, where we can kind of get the word out in different ways, they would do it by sending a group ahead of them. and They would uh, get everybody excited about it, let them know when they're coming, those kinds of things. So Jesus is doing just this very thing so that they can prepare, those cities can prepare for him passing through. And when they come back, they, uh, they have these great stories to tell about how they were able to get demons to submit to them. Uh, and Jesus uh, makes this very interesting statement about how he watched Satan fall from heaven like a flash of lightning, like Satan has been... Um, 
conquered or knocked out of his role in heaven. And we don't really know, I don't think, if this is a historical reference, a future reference, prophetic reference, or what. Uh, but it does align with a passage in Revelation chapter 12. Uh, and if you have an opportunity to go back and read that, where uh, Satan is uh, kicked out of the kingdom and is bound on earth, as it were. And Jesus very well may be referring to that. So after he celebrates uh, with them, then he, he kind of rejoices in the Lord because of all the things that have happened. Uh, and, and he makes this statement, Lord of heaven and earth, this is in uh, chapter 10, verse 21, because you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to the infants. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. A very pointed statement Jesus is making at the Jewish leadership. He's hidden the truth from them, but yet he reveals it to the common people. And so that kind of sets up this particular situation because then he turns to the disciples and he says this, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. And so he is speaking to them about the very specific truth about his kingdom that not only have they heard, but now they have seen happen. And this is probably going to agitate the Jewish leadership of the day. Uh, and that's kind of where we enter into this parable. So now that we know that context... It's not a surprise when we read verse 25 and it says, just then, right, immediately after he shares uh, this comment and this rejoicing with his disciples, just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Now, this lawyer would have been not like the lawyers that we think of today, but it would have been someone who was an expert in the Torah uh, and they would have been seated, and this one, and which means Jesus was teaching. Anytime uh, a teacher sits down, that is a symbol for everyone. That is to, their cue that I'm going to teach. So when this lawyer, when you have a question, you stand up. So this lawyer then stands up, ask his question, uh, and Luke editorizes that by letting us know that he does that to test Jesus. So let's do not forget our issue of honor and shame in first century culture. Uh, the purpose of this lawyer to stand up and test Jesus is he's going to ask a question. And if Jesus does not answer it well, then Jesus will be shamed because of the audience's response. And the lawyer, this particular scribe, if you will, Torah expert, is going to receive honor. And part of the consequence of that is... If Jesus is shamed and the lawyer is honored, this expert is honored, people will begin to question Jesus and they will potentially move away from following him and move back to following or move towards following, um, probably in this case, um, a, a group of Pharisees. A lot of these scribes were, were members of the Pharisees. If he is a Torah expert, that's what they did. That's not what the Sadducees did, but that is what the Pharisees did. So that's what he's going for when he, when he rises to test Jesus. And he says, teacher, he may mean that seriously. He may be a bit facetious here. But he says, teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this is not an unusual question. Uh, Jewish population would have asked this question 
because you know their their Old Testament faith is based on the covenant of an obedience. It is not based on the covenant of faith that we as New Testament Christians understand. So they're forever thinking, are my good deeds and behaviors outweighing my bad? And you know, am I going to make it? Am I going to get in? And if you, if you have read the New Testament scripture, you also know that Jesus gets asked this question multiple times by different people. And he answers them differently. There's not one answer. When they ask, how do I inherit eternal life? Jesus uses their current context that what is that kind of that, uh, that abiding sin? What is that wall or that block that keeps them from just fully giving themselves to Jesus? What is it that they need to do so that they put everything else behind them and they go forward to Jesus? And that's his response in most of those cases. So this is not an unusual question, uh, and it's very important that he says, what must I do? Because this, because he's looking for a specific answer for himself, uh, and Jesus does do that. He gives, as we said, gives specific answers, and again, the Jews would have looked for specific answers. So not unusual. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Which also is another clue that he's probably part of uh, of the of the Pharisaical sect, the group of Pharisees, because the Sadducees did not believe in an afterlife. So he said to them, he said to him, Jesus says to him in verse 26, what is written in the law? What do you read there? Jesus looks at him and puts the question back on him. Not unusual for Jesus. He answers a question with a question, which I was always told when I was uh, going to school growing up, don't ever answer a question with a question. Well, Jesus does it on a regular basis. So um, I'm going to keep doing it myself. What is written in the law? You're the expert. You tell me. You know, what do you read there, uh, lawyer? And he answered Jesus, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. So he, he comes back with this pretty comprehensive answer about love. Uh, and it's not a, his answer is not a surprise, actually. It's, it's a combination of, of a verse in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, as well as Leviticus 19, 18. Uh, and these were passages that Jewish believers in God would have repeated over and over again. Uh, I mean, many times, multiple times a day. It was part of the Shema for example, that they had to religiously repeat that allowed them to remember where their love was based and what they were to do with it. So Jesus probably fully well expected this very answer. And it was from the, from the experts, the Torah experts' perspective, it was the correct answer. But then Jesus says to him, verse 28, you have given the right answer, do this and you will live. That should be the end of this discussion. Jesus said, you're correct. Do it. But note that this expert's looking for something more. right? He's looking to qualify the answer. So he says in verse 29, but wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So exactly who do I have to love as myself? That he said in verse 27, who have I got to show that love? So he's trying to, all right, who can we weed out here? Right? So who, who would be 
um, a neighbor to a, a Jewish leader. It would be another Jew, uh, more than likely. It would not necessarily be Gentiles, unbelievers, um, but it would be a Jew, and it may be a Jew who is not cursed with something like leprosy. It may be a Jew who is a little bit more affluent, not stricken by poverty. So he's looking you know, for Jesus to qualify that. Uh, and Jesus does not answer the question, at least directly, I think, and who is my neighbor. He will kind of get to there, but he actually reframes the question a little bit by telling this parable. And this is where the parable begins in verse 30. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. So a couple of things here. Uh, First of all, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho was a very well-known road. Uh, It was 17 miles long, uh, and it descended um, somewhere around 3,000 feet or so in that 17 miles. It was not uh, a very wide road because Jerusalem is up on a mountain and Jericho is, is quite a bit lower, as, as I've mentioned, with the, with the elevation drop. It would have been kind of a rocky road. It was actually known as a dangerous road. So when you take that road, you are putting your, putting your life at risk. So you have this man, and all we, we don't know anything else about him except that he's a man. That's all we know was going down from Jerusalem Jericho. So he, he did fall into the hands of the robbers, and they strip him, beat him, went away leaving him half dead. So they have truly, uh, obviously, uh, provoked harm on him. But there's something else maybe at play here in that by stripping him, beating him, leaving him half dead, so you can get a mental image of kind of the condition this man is in, they have taken away all of his cultural identity markers. You can't tell if he's Jewish, and if he is, which sect he's uh, aligned with. You can't tell if he's Gentile or not. You don't know uh, if he is Gentile, if he's Roman or Ethiopian or what. So this is all playing in the minds of the audience that Jesus is allowing to listen, because you got to remember The Torah expert asks the question, but the audience includes a broader number of people. So now you have someone who's been beat that cannot be identified. Verse 31, Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. So you've got two uh, Jewish religious leaders, servants, who are walking down this same road from Jerusalem to Jericho, they see this man uh, who has been um, beat almost to death, and they step to the other side of the road and pass him by. Now, if you are part of the Jewish audience, this actually may not shock you at this point. And there's a couple of reasons why. One is, again, they don't know the identity of the man. This could be a setup, right? Faking injury, making it look like he's been harmed, only to have someone jump out and then attack them. Uh, The other issue going on here is you have two religious leaders, and it's clear their direction is from Jerusalem to Jericho. So there's at least a possibility 
that they have been in Jerusalem serving in the temple, and that rotated amongst the priests and the Levites in the land throughout the year. And if they had, they have been fully cleansed after during and after serving, and they're headed back you know, to Jericho or somewhere along the way to Jericho to continue on probably to their local home service. And if they had dealt with this man, they probably would have become unclean because of, of the blood. Once they touch um, that kind of blood, they become unclean. And if they become, and if they touch a corpse, you know, if he's if he's almost dead, uh, then he may look dead. And if they touch that corpse, or they touch the blood, they become unclean. Well, if they become unclean, they actually have to go back, uh, and for a priest to become clean again, uh, they have to sacrifice. Uh, a, a red heifer is generally what is understood, a, a special cow only for priestly cleansing, cleanliness. And if they have to do that, then once they are sprinkled with the blood from that red heifer, then they have to wait seven days. During that seven days, they are not allowed to work in the synagogue, so they cannot do their jobs during that period of time. But in addition to that, uh, they are generally have to stay inside. They can't come in, come in contact with people, so they can't get out and about. They really can't even come in contact with their own family uh, or associate with their family. So, you know, by stopping for the moment uh, to check on this gentleman, uh, to, to tend to him, they are compromising their work. Now, clearly we wouldn't want them to walk past this particular person without rendering some type of aid. Hopefully we would uh, if we felt safe doing it as well. But just for the point of context, this is, this is not the stressful moment you know, in, the, in the parable that we know that Jesus will throw in at times. Uh, and I think he does that. He throws that stress in there because he is trying to get them to understand the kingdom of God and how radically different it is from the kingdom of earthly religions, which once you, you take a belief and you make a structured corporate religion out of it, then a lot of times it takes on its own life. and It does not do what it was intended to do in the first place. We have to be real careful that you know, our religiosity doesn't get in get in the way of living our faith in the appropriate manner. And what I mean by religion or religiosity is the practice of our faith, right? The things that we do that, um, that allow us to live out our faith. So as Christians, some of the practices of our faith, which are all excellent and well-intended and meaningful, are you know, prayer, Bible study, um, attending church, fellowshipping and supporting other believers, right? All those are great things, for example. Um, but let's look at attending church for a moment. Uh, if if uh, you are attending church or as a minister, I am going to church to do my job, uh, how many times may I pass by someone in need because I'm so busy doing, quote, unquote, my job? Right? I get so caught up in, I've got to get to this meeting for church, I've got to go do this, whatever it may be, I've got to see this person, I've got to teach this lesson, that we may walk by people who are kind of in the shadows and they are struggling just to survive. Right? 
they may need a meal, they may need health care, job, they need, they need a, a roof over their head. We don't know. But that's where that religiosity can begin to, to compromise the actual intent of our faith. And so I don't think we condone what they did. We just need to talk about the context of it, that it would not have shocked Jesus' audience if they are primarily a Jewish audience at the time. But when we get to verse 33, here's your shock, right? Two have passed by this man, a priest and a Levite. Jesus goes on in verse 33, but a Samaritan while traveling came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. So <laughs> after Jesus kind of sets this up, he brings in probably the person, one of the people that the, that the Jews would have despised the most. Jews and Samaritans have a notorious history of hatred for each other. They, you know, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, you have Samaritan-Jewish conflict, uh, fighting, all kinds of things going on. And the irony of all this is that Samaritans come from Jewish heritage. Uh, when the Assyrians and the Babylonians and maybe even the Persians, maybe not so much the Persians, but maybe, I, I think, but the Assyrians and the Babylonians for sure conquer Israel, one of their techniques, and it's brilliant, it's terrible but brilliant, is that they exile the people in foreign places. So they break up the leadership of the particular people, culture, country they've conquered. They break up their influencers. They break up the general population, and they send them off to different places and have them blend in with other cultures. And they bring in uh, people from other cultures and place them within the nation or the territory of the nation they've conquered. And what this has the effect of doing is watering down their culture and their beliefs. It's called syncretism, where you take multiple beliefs and you blend them together into new beliefs. And what it would do outside of separating the, the military minds and the scientific minds and the leadership minds uh, of the group, which was pretty smart strategy as well, but it would also... Um, cause them to start blending in with these new cultures. They may begin working with them, intermarrying, blending their faiths together. It waters them down and makes it easier to keep them under submission. So when that happened with the Assyrians, there are a group of people who were brought in to the area that we know as the area of Samaria, and they end up uh, intermarrying with the Jewish community, these foreign peoples they brought in. Uh, and the Samaritans become a blend of Jews and other cultures. And if you recall, there's part of the New Testament where Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at the well. And she talks, he talks about how they worship at Mount Gerizim and not in Jerusalem. And that's because they modified their faith and their faith kind of stopped as far as writing goes and understanding the growth of the Jewish faith. Uh, and they remained very focused on the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They built a temple on Mount Gerizim, while the rest of the Jewish population, being probably more led by God, 
continue writing. You have the prophets, and you you have the wisdom literature that is added to, uh, and of course they build the temple in Jerusalem. So when when, uh, this gentleman, this expert, as well as the crowd hears that a Samaritan is walking by, um, soon as they hear it, they probably think, as soon as they hear the name, they're probably thinking, yep, for sure he's going to walk on by. But then Jesus quickly, Jesus quickly says, came near him, saw him, and was moved with pity. There's your stress. That is not at all how it's supposed to happen. And if you can imagine hearing this story in a group setting, or hearing any story in a group setting, and all of a sudden, the storyteller is going in one direction and then just completely turns and heads in another direction. You can almost, if you pay attention, you can almost hear the audible, uh-uh. And there's no way that that could be it. But that's the story that Jesus is telling. He says in verse 34, this Samaritan, he went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. So he took care of his wounds the oil and the wine, the wine would have been a disinfectant uh, to, to kill the bacteria from the dirt and whatever from the beating. The oil would have been a salve uh, that he would have put on it to help with healing, and he's given of his own stuff. Then he put him, it goes on to say, on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. So then he not only helps him there, he actually puts him on his animal, his donkey, whatever he may have had, takes him to a local inn, uh, and then takes care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. So not only uh, has he taken care of this person at the site of the incident, he has taken him to an inn and taken care of him there, and then gives money so that he would continue to be taken care of. And a denarius was about the way a day's wage for a day laborer. So he gives him, in essence, two days' wages to the innkeeper and says, keep taking care of him, and oh, by the way, I'll be back. Interestingly enough, uh, as he's traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, there's at least a chance he is not in Samaritan territory. If he's closer to Jericho, yeah, probably so. But if he's closer to Jerusalem, He's still in Jewish territory, so this man could be taking a great risk by taking this uh, this man who is who is almost dead to an inn where it may be run by a Jewish innkeeper who could have turned him in. Who knows? We're not sure, but there's at least uh, a sense of there may be some risk uh, there. So he says, you know, take care of him. I'll repay you whatever more you spend. He puts no conditions on it, and then Jesus says this. To this Torah expert, verse 36, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? So this is where I think Jesus changes the question, right? Who is my neighbor was the question. Jesus' question back to him is, who was he a neighbor to? Not who was the neighbor, but who did the Samaritan make a neighbor of, if you will, if that makes sense, right? Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? It's not a passive thing anymore. It's an active thing. Don't ask who is your neighbor. Ask who do you need need to be a neighbor for or to. 
the Torah expert, in verse 37, he said, the one who showed him mercy, Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. So can, can you see as Jesus talks about all the care that this Samaritan does, that the stress on the people just grows and grows and grows. I mean, all of a sudden, this is a very tense moment. You can feel this crescendo happening, and then Jesus looks at this Torah expert and says, who do you think was the neighbor? Was it the priest? Was it the Levite? Was it the Samaritan? Uh, and I don't know. We, we, we really don't know from reading this parable, but I just have the sense that uh, this, this lawyer, this Torah expert, has to take this big breath, maybe this big swallow, and like, what am I going to say here? Because quite honestly, if he doesn't agree that the Samaritan is the neighbor, then he's going to receive a huge amount of shame from the crowd because it's obvious. Jesus has told this story in a way that you can't miss the point, uh, at least to some degree. But when he admits that it's the Samaritan, he's still going to get shamed. Either way... Jesus gets the honor. Isn't it that, isn't it that how it always happens in the, in the Scripture? They, they don't get who Jesus is. They don't quite understand, especially the Jewish leadership. They don't truly understand who Jesus is, so they're not factoring in the fact that he always will have the right answer. And They've really taken the wrong approach to try to address him. So I want you to think about this as, as you kind of look at this overall parable. And, and I don't really want you to to necessarily consider this to be the only answer. Um, in, in good Jesus fashion, what I should do is drop it right now and then let you chew on this. And I, and I think you should, but I want to give you one perspective about the Samaritan and maybe how it applies to us uh, as Christians. And then you can kind of decide what to do with it. But uh, please do go back and read this some more. Uh, discuss it with friends. Uh, I would actually encourage you to discuss it with people who are very different than you and get different perspectives of what the parable says to them. Uh, what a great discussion and coffee group or uh, craft beer group you could have where you grab people together and you have this discussion of the parables and you get everybody's perspective because that's the intent. They're left open-ended in almost all cases. Only the disciples get to know some of the explanations that Jesus does. But but let me throw this one out. This one out at you, and, and you can decide what you think. Um, part of my education is in psychology. And one of the things that I think I learned early on uh, is that attitude does not leave behavior, lead behavior. Behavior leads attitude. And what I mean by that is, is that uh, if you look at someone and you want them to change their attitude about something or someone, they're not going to wake up one morning generally speaking, and go, you know what, I do feel different about that. They're not going to have this intellectual aha moment, right? If people are prejudiced, they're not going to think, gosh, I was prejudiced yesterday. Today, I am not. That was wrong. Uh, people with uh, addictions don't generally wake up one morning and go, wow, I'm not going to do whatever my addiction was before. Uh, there's more of a process there. So what I think is, is that when you have a moment where you feel that you need to change or you feel you need to do something, then your behavior needs to begin to change. It's like small steps. So once you begin to take one step, then you take another, then you take three more, ten more, a hundred more, however many more is necessary, 
you'll watch your attitude change based on your behavior. So if someone hates a group of people, for example, odds are they're not waking up the next morning and they're all of a sudden loving that group of people. But if, if they are challenged to or they have at least an aha moment because the Holy Spirit has moved in their life that, you know what, I probably don't need to hate those folks. And then they begin to change their behavior. They spend time with those folks. Uh, they serve those folks. You know, they try to learn about individuals, right? It's easy to hate a group. It's much harder to hate a person that you become personally intimate with, that you know and begin to care about. So I think that behavior leads attitude. And so possibly that could be one of the lessons that Jesus is teaching here because if you watch watch what the Samaritan does, it's behavior-based. He had to notice the person, and that's really the first part of it. I mean, he could have walked on by just like... Um, the priest and the Levite did. Yes, they saw the person over there, but they didn't really take notice, if that makes sense, right? How many times a day do you pass by people in need? Do you do things that, that, that cause you to miss the opportunities that God has put in front of you? And a very more practical example, how many times do you drive somewhere that you don't really don't even remember how you got there? You, you know, you didn't really think it all the way through. Well, that's what I mean by that. The, the Samaritan was conscious of the man. He didn't just notice him over there. He came near him so that he could see him. Right? That's the first thing. He came near him so he could see him. The second thing is he showed compassion. and said he took pity on him. He sees the need in spite of his situation. Right? This Greek word for pity gets used 11 times uh, in other places in the New Testament, uh, two times it's used to talk about God's compassion in saving uh, and forgiving the lost. The other nine times it's used in Jesus' motivation for healing people. So you can almost see the tie-in. This word is used for a specific reason when it says uh, that he took pity on him. Uh, that, is, that word is well-placed by Luke because what Luke's trying to get you to see is, is he behaved like Jesus and God would have. Then he makes contact. Right? It may not be comfortable. Uh, he's on a dangerous road. This man is beaten half to death. He doesn't know what's going to happen, but he still makes contact. And even we can have compassion on people, but if we refuse to make contact with them, odds are we won't fully change our attitude about them. Then he gives him care. He gave of himself, and he gives a lot, right? He goes to him, he bandages his wound, he uses his own supplies, he uses some of his oil and wine that he probably would have used for cooking and drinking on his journey to help this man. Then he lets him ride his animal. Then he takes money out of his pocket. So this Samaritan is all in on taking care of this man. And then he makes a promise of future payment. I'm going to give you more, he says to the innkeeper, if you have to spend more, I'll take care of it. Don't worry about it. So that is a full caring commitment, and he's willing to pay the cost. He's willing to pay the cost of time, uh, of personal commitment, and clearly of financial help, right? Uh, he sacrifices his safety, his resources to help this man. And so uh, as you can see, right, he show, he's conscious of him. He shows compassion. He makes contact. 
He provides care, and then he pays the cost. He does all of those things, right? Beautiful model, really, of what Jesus does for us as well. And all that behavior would have changed his attitude if and when he figured out who this man was. It could have been someone that he would have hated, culturally speaking. We don't know. Uh, and that's not the answer to the story. That's not Jesus' point. Jesus' point is, is he took care of him no matter what. He overlooked everything else to be a neighbor to the man. That seems to be the point of the parable, right? So we, are, we as believers, are charged with standing in the gap, uh, the physical gap, the emotional gap, and the spiritual gap for so many people, right? We need to do this in our homes. We need to do this in our workplaces. We need to do this when we're doing social things. Instead of asking who is our neighbor, we need to ask, who do we need to be a neighbor to? I think that's just one way to translate or, or interpret, excuse me, this parable. Uh, and hopefully that's meaningful to you. But again, I encourage you, you keep reading, you keep studying uh, this parable and see, see what it means. Let it, let it kind of um, settle in your brain. Let it marinate, uh, as we say every, every now and then. Let it marinate and stew in your heart and then see what, what Jesus is trying to tell you through this parable. What a great parable. I love this one. This one's, uh, this one's a very good one. And hopefully this was beneficial to you and you were able to glean something from it. So we'll come back at you next time with another one. But until then, let's stay in the Word and let's keep this journey going together. Thanks. Thank you for tuning into Lessons with Pastor Steve Sellers. Check back soon on all podcasting platforms for the next available episode. This series is produced by Riley Moncrief for Camino Church. To learn more about our church, like us on Facebook at Camino Church or visit us online at CaminoChurch.com. We'll see you next time.